There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Gary Bloom, and you're listening to On The Sporting Couch. I'm a sports broadcaster, counsellor and psychotherapist, and that means I work one-to-one with all sorts of people who are having or have experienced problems in their day-to-day lives. It's sometimes called a talking therapy. It doesn't mean the individual is ill or sick. It just means that they feel the need to discuss the things that are going on in their lives because they're going through a tough time. The goal of therapy is to understand ourselves better. One in four of us will experience strong feelings that can overwhelm us at some stage in our lives. My training allows me to work with people who are experiencing mood disorders like anxiety, depression, performance anxiety, relationship and work issues and addictive behaviours. I'm undertaking this project to help widen the understanding of mental well-being in sport and beyond. Nearly everyone listening will know of someone who's been in this position at some stage and hopefully this programme will give a greater understanding of what goes on between therapist and the person who today is on the sporting couch. Meet Marcus Truscothic, arguably one of the best opening batsmen this country has ever produced. He represented England in 76 tests and 123 one-day internationals and was one of the first names on an England team sheet between the years 2000 and 2008. However, his glittering international career was decimated by debilitating bouts of depression and anxiety which forced him into international retirement at the height of his England career. England's loss was his county's gain and he continues to play county cricket with Somerset and this coming season will be his 25th as a professional player. So in the next hour I hope you'll hear what I think is a really brave admission by an elite sportsman that the life they were leading as a professional wasn't all it looked like from the outside. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch with me Gary Bloom and Marcus Truscothic who once said the beast of depression ruined my test career. I'd like to start where your book starts, your autobiography, almost 10 years ago, March 2008. Mm-hmm. And you're in an electrical shop at Heathrow Airport, about to board a flight to Dubai with your Somerset mm-hmm. team. Can you explain what happened there? Um, pretty much, yeah. It was just a case that we were going on a pre-season trip to Dubai. Um, only a couple of weeks, I think, two and a half weeks sort of journey, um, just for you know early season as you do. Um, got to the airport and just realised this overwhelming sense of anxiety, panic, if you like, about um, 
not so much getting on the flight and travelling. It was just, uh, you know, being away from the family, the insecurity that, um, that that it comes across me when, once I get to that position. So um, it was it all became too much, and I ended up then speaking to the coach, and and that was it. The rest is history, and you you, you know you you sit down and discuss and then you decide right I'm not going to go and there's a big problems about getting bags off flights and, and things like that but um, it was just the, the normal feelings that had suddenly come rushing back to me at that point Can you explain to somebody who might not quite get what happened what were the feelings you had about leaving your wife and your children behind mm. what, what what were these sensations It's just, it's, the anxiety is um general anxiety you know you get the sweaty palms you get that nervous feeling in the back of your neck um in your head your brain's going at 100 miles an hour thinking what if what if what is the fear marcus what was the fear i i I don't know i think it's just a case of um being away from the security of what i know you know going to a foreign country being in a different hotel being away from you, you, you know, the, your security blanket of being at home in your own bed and being with your, with your family there. Just you, you lose that. Once that's taken away, it's suddenly that 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 panic um, comes over me. But and it's funny because I've done it loads of times and enjoyed it loads of times and and still do now. Like we've just come back from Spain only two weeks ago. Yeah, we spent ten days over there pre-season trip. Why why can I go there? But I couldn't go then at that time. Who knows? But. Um, yeah, that that sort of feeling of panic and uncontrollable uh, anxiety just uh, gets too much. You see, as a therapist, I've picked up the word security blanket, mm. and that suggests something that is very, very old that goes back to when you are very young. Mm. Do you think there was elements of this anxiety when you were very young? Mm. Oh, definitely, definitely. I, I've, it first came to fore when I was 10, 11. We went on our first sort of trip away with school down to Torquay and I was living in Bristol at the time, a couple of hours away um, and I had exactly the same feelings I always put it down to just being homesick being away from um, you know, the security of what it was and just you know, you get used to it after a few days but um, that lived with me for a long long time but that, that was the feeling of when it was, when I was 10, 11 was exactly the same sort of feelings that I get even now when, when I have bad spells um, and deal with you know the whole process of it so what does homesick mean to you because it might mean different things to different people mm. yeah well i just put it just being away from my family you know i didn't think about anything else of what it was i just you know being away from what i do day to day waking up um playing cricket doing what i did go to school wherever it was and your family are there your mum dad your sister are there um and suddenly I was in a totally different environment and they weren't there. That's what I always thought it was. It didn't appeal to me or didn't just seem to me that it was any more than what it was at the time. Only as time goes on, then that, that changes and you get a better understanding of it. And do you think that got transferred over to your wife and children? Yeah, it probably did. I think the the anxieties of what you get when, when kids are around, the, the extra burden that you carry, the extra stress you have of having these little bundles here that you've got to try and look after and uh, and, and try and um, care for. Um, and then that, that was the time then that I said almost enough is enough, and that's when it came to a real head in 2006 when I was in India. Mm. And it was the second trip I'd been away from um, from my first child. And it was just, no, th- th- this was far greater than it, that it had ever been. It was the homesickness times 10, and, and, and everything was far greater than what I'd, than I'd really appreciated it was going to be.
Reading your autobiography, it becomes evident that your family life is built around the game of cricket and in particular in the area you live in Somerset. I just wonder whether those really strong family relationships became too difficult to move as you started growing up and becoming a professional mm. cricketer. I don't know the answer to that. I grew up, yeah, through playing cricket. My dad was playing, mum used to do the teas, my sister used to come and watch, she had no choice. But um, I'd just been involved with it all the way through my career and, and all the way through my life from a very, very young age. And then we just we played it at weekends, we practised it in the gardens, we did everything we could to do so and um you, you just get engulfed in it as much as you can do don't you but you know and then it it builds on to then bigger and greater things playing playing professional um uh, and you just understand that you're doing it for a job also but you know rather than just playing it for the love of the game but i think that's what keeps me going even now but it's an interesting interesting thought that you do you just get wrapped up in in everything cricket that goes along i'd like to just look at the the key relationships in your life growing up with mum and dad how were they? Very good. Um, very simple. Um, nothing too stressful or nothing very different about you know, anybody's life growing up, any, any particular difference. But um, um, obviously I had a sister. She's three years older than me and um, very caring family that, that would run as per normal. Dad had his own business and mum and dad worked together doing that. Um, you know, it's pretty pretty simple life, I guess, if you if you look at it in that fashion. And Dad was was heavily involved in cricket in, in Somerset, wasn't mm. he? Yeah, Cainsham Cricket Club, where we sort of sort of grew up playing and and, and being there, watching all the time. Um, he's now president of the club, um, and we were there a lot. You know, during the summer holidays, we were there every weekend. You'd be there a couple of times during the week, and it was just a very social place that we would be as a family. Because obviously, we were playing, but also events that were happening there along the, along the time we go and watch as well so um yeah it was just you know, something you were born into and, and could never get away from so were you closer to mum or closer to dad <sighs> good question I, I guess in the sporting context obviously i was closer with dad because obviously he had a understanding more not the same that mum didn't but um he knew a bit more about the game. He coached me more. He was coaches of the coach of the the, the teams that I was playing for. Um, but they both came to watch ninety nine percent of the games anyway. Um, but Mum would have been more the opposite side of things, so dealing with my school staff and okay. um, general day to day life and living. I would suggest at that point. So how was it early on when you realised Dad couldn't make it to see you play cricket, especially if it was an important match? Uh, I don't think there was many times. I think most of the time they would have been there. The, the very odd occasion, maybe if Dad was working or something. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember physically. Physically can't remember any games that they weren't there. I'm sure there were games where they didn't turn up. Of course they did, but um, I don't remember particularly any. And when you became a professional, when was the first time you realised I'm on my own now at the crease? Mm. Mum and Dad aren't here. When was that? When did you realise that for the first time? Well, it wasn't a problem when I was playing because I was very focused on what you were doing. Um, still travelling away, you used to, you know, I spend winters at home for the first three or four years. Um, so I'd go home in the winter, practice and do where I could and train, get myself ready for the following summer, and then move down to Taunton um, come April time. Um, and even those sort of periods, yeah, the first couple of days, couple of or maybe a week or so, would be a little bit nervous and ang- anxious about what I was going to do. But I soon settled into it. Um, but I was still returning home quite regularly back to my parents on a, a weekend to play club cricket and see them. 
and and carry it on from there really but um you know it wasn't that far away you know but you, you know I'm only an hour up the road um and it wasn't until I was 20 that I fully moved down full time but I still go back and visit as much as you could do at that sort of time even then so were you able to talk to your mum and dad about being being homesick? Uh, once or twice I did. Yeah, once or twice I did, and and, and let them know that you know I feel this. And what did they say? Um, just to try and get on with it. And I know that <laughs> sounds quite harsh in a way, doesn't it? But you know, just to try and get into what I was trying to do. You know, get into the cricket or get into the school trip and be and try and not focus on it as much as you can do, which is you know I, I can understand it, but. Um, just didn't it didn't it didn't work i couldn't it couldn't control it very easily the only thing that made it control was just being secure and comfortable in my surroundings and where i was i suppose the word i'm looking for is when do you feel safe because it strikes me reading your book and having met you before today Mm. that safety is a really important part of your life Mm. how do you make yourself safe in the world yeah i guess so yeah um i don't know You, you just get comfortable don't you and i'm very um Am I very secure in my life? Yeah, you know, I'm. I'm a lot better than where I was a few years ago. Obviously, um, the help of medication and, and dealing and understanding the process of, of mental illness is um, has helped get a bit of a, a grip on it. it. It's still very average feeling when you when you fall back into um, into a few problems. As anybody knows, that you know it comes and goes at times, and it's it's hard to get rid of. But you know, I just like that feeling of just everything in order everything's sorted I know what I'm doing tomorrow I know where I'm going to be next week do I cope with things that throw me out of kilter probably not no so anything that unsurprising sort of is thrown at me I'm like whoa you know just okay let's get plans in place and get everything in order and get back to track back on track what happens when you are on your own what nowadays mm. um nothing really because uh, that was a fear of yours and we talked last time we met that yeah. you've never actually lived on your own you've lived with pals other yeah. cricketers then you got married but and I said to you could you live on your own yeah the only time I lived on my own sort of is when I first moved down to Taunton I lived in a flat at mm-hmm. the cricket ground um, no one else was around um, but my girlfriend was around the corner and I used to spend quite a lot of time there um, but I would have been in a flat on my own at that time but not not for very long only a couple of months um but yeah, I guess I I like people around me. I like to have that social time around me. When I feel bad now, I I don't I spend as little time on my own as possible, hmm. unless I'm out doing the gardening or trying to occupy my mind to make sure I'm focused on it, um, just to keep my my brain busy. But I guess having the people around me makes me feel comfortable and knowing that I can talk to somebody if I need to or they can help me out with something, um, just a something to rely on. I guess and more than anything else. I'm looking at the bigger picture. The times that your anxiety is at its worst is when you go to a foreign country. You know you're going to be there for several weeks. Yeah. What are the fears that play on your mind in those situations? Everything I've said. It's the you know the feeling of being away from the comfort blanket of knowing your own home, knowing your own bed. But you've been staying in five star yeah. hotels and foods laid on and yeah, yeah. It's, transport. It's kind of irrelevant almost, you know, because you catastrophize everything that goes on. And for people who don't understand what catastrophizing means, can you just explain to it how, well, it, how it works? Just like mate, making a mounting out of a molehill, basically. The smallest thing can be 
um, what you're concerned of. Uh, you know, what am I going to eat for food? What if I'm in India and suddenly the food is really bad? How am I going to prepare myself for the game tomorrow? What if I wake up ill in the night? Who's going to, you know, who's going to help me get through it? You know, just trying to just everything that you can do on a normal basis and you you're very rational about it on a normal day-to-day basis you catastrophize and make into this huge problem in your own mind it's not a problem when you're actually rational and understanding what you're doing it's just your brain goes into overdrive and you know starts stressing about the smallest little things and when that happens how do you know it's about to come on or you're in the midst of a full-blown panic attack yeah i don't know if i've ever had panic attacks it's just general anxiety panic um, uh, which is stayed constant for 24 hours, really. And how do you know it's happening? Um, just by the, the emotional feelings that you get, mm-hmm. the sweating, the not wanting to eat, not wanting to drink. Um, you know, sleeping goes out the window. You're, you know, you're tired in the days. Um, you know, all the little signs that come along, and you, and you then have to try and, you know, put things in place. But it's just that emotional feeling that you get when the anxiety is there. You're listening to On the Sporting Couch with me, psychotherapist and sports broadcaster Gary Bloom, and Somerset and England opener Marcus Truscothic. You thrive on anxiety, if you like, when you play cricket. Why? Because it, it's, that's what makes you better. It, you couldn't go out and face somebody who's bowling 100 miles an hour if you just got out of bed. You see, the, the, the paradox for me, talking to an international batsman, is I would be absolutely, you know what, facing a bowler who's about to bowl at me for 100, 100 miles an hour. There mm. you are, as calm as you like, great hand-eye coordination. That doesn't bother you. No. Worrying about your next meal does. Yeah, <laughs> well, worrying about the smallest little things does, absolutely. Um, because I've trained that for so long, I've, I've practised that since I was a little kid to get myself in that frame of mind um, that you just programmed your brain to get there. So you can almost switch into the right side of the brain to make sure you're focused on what you've got to do. You walk out to bat... Um, and get on with what you have to do. And and, and it, you use the adrenaline, you use the anxiety to make you move faster, to make you focus better, concentrate more, um, and just be aware of the situation. You know, you don't walk out and be aware of the crowd when there's 50,000 people there. You, you can hear it, but you're not aware of everybody talking because there's so many people talking, you, you don't understand it. Um, when, you're an- when you're anxious and you're you're worrying about things behind the scenes that it's, it's a different process altogether like many sportsmen i've spoken to on on this on this program very often being on the pitch is the best place to mm. be it's when you get off the pitch yep. that all the problems start and Definitely. i know there's been one or two key um examples where that's not been the case for you mm. uh th- most of the time it is uh, i agree with you totally that you know to stay on the on the pitch is the best place to be just purely because you focus on watching the ball and doing the job that you have to do it's when you have the time to think and the time to sit down you don't want, i don't want to be alone with my thoughts when i'm when i'm feeling poorly I, I, I try and distract myself away from the feeling as much as i can do because being alone and just having time to think about them is then when you start catastrophizing everything and building everything up as much as you can do the more I can distract my brain, the quicker things settle down as much as possible and you get back to an even kill. So it's, you, can, you can almost feel the sense of the brain just being totally out of control and when it's almost coming back into you know, to where it should be in line to what you, you normally think uh, and control along that way. So, 
Can you tell us about the times when you have taken that anxiety onto a cricket field? Oh, yeah, quite a number of times. Um, so the first time, I guess, um, in India, when I first came back in 2006, I was out there batting, um, knowing full well I was done, you know, and I knew that any point I could just break down and cry and and fought the tears back a few times while actually out on the pitch. You know, you luckily you can just turn around and face the next ball, so you've got to be pretty focused on what you've got to do. I only got. 35 or so I think it was and uh, then I walked off and completely fell apart and that was obviously then the the, the part of the written all in the book about being in India and suddenly what was going on I remember Michael Vaughan saying to me what's wrong just sit down I said I can't sit down all this adrenaline and panic just going through my body that I couldn't control and understand so that was one time Um, then what was it it would have been my first year as captain of Somerset, I remember my first game up at Leeds. Um, I felt awful going up into it. And, and I asked my parents to come up just to give me a little bit more support, just to try and uh, help me out more than anything else, just get me through the first week. Um, and, and I almost considered the night before my very first game as captain to you know, resign because I couldn't cope with the pressure and the anxiety that I was feeling. But you, know, you go out the next day and I felt the whole game I felt pretty rough. Um, but I remember the the first innings won the toss and we batted and I knew then at that point I had to really bat a long period of time because I knew if I'd gone off the pitch I was going to break down and and crash uh, and just sit there crying my eyes out and I really really didn't want to do that on my first day as captain lucky enough I batted for a you know sort of best part of sort of five hours got 120 um, walked off and everything started to then fall back into place so it's interesting that you know it's at this time when you're you're promoted to captain of Somerset, that it's mum and dad who you call upon mm. to give you that emotional support. Once yeah. again, your safety blanket. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That was just a, an easy thing to do. And, and I guess it's probably more the, the after the game is done, just to give me that support to uh, help me relax and understand more than what's going on and try and control the anxiety to to sit and talk with them enough and, and make me try and get back to that rational brain thinking and we spent the week there the three or four days there yeah. played the game and by the end of the game I felt absolutely great four days done and then we had like two days in between in between and we played another game and going into the second game I was fine just because my brain was in the totally the wrong space I couldn't cope with understanding or, or working out how I was going to do it so having that little safety blanket there, just to get myself back in the right frame of mind and then understanding what I needed to do, then I knew I could do the job after that and, and loved doing the job. It's just you, 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 when, you, when you're poorly and you're ill, you, your brain convinces you you can do nothing and challenges you to do all the smallest things. What support have you had from your teammates throughout your career dealing with mental health issues? Well, they've been very good. I, I guess luckily that I opened up to them very quickly and let them know the the extent of what was going on once I'd understood it and 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 got to grips with it um I then let them know that this is the sort of these are the problems I get this is what I got to do it almost almost become a bit of a joke in the changing room that you know that that what I suffer with and I guess it um normalizes it a little bit and, and makes it not quite as painful as what it can be because everybody knows now that, and, I, and I'm free to talk about it to anybody, and I try to talk about it as much as I can do. But that's um, not always been the case, Marcus. And there's a, there's a fairly sizable part of the book about the cover-up mm. 
when you had to come home from a tour. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was mainly because I wasn't a I wasn't sure what was going on, um, and then obviously not comfortable to to talk to people about it. And it, it it builds. You get that to that point where you can go, okay, I'm ready to talk now. If people don't know what happened, can you explain about the cover up and the Sky TV interview? Yep, I saw. Uh, so the first time I came back from India, we um, I was back for a, a few weeks, and I then arranged my own way I wanted to do an interview to talk to people I got to the morning and got to the day of the interview and then I suddenly realised this was not something I wanted to do um, carried on and did the interview and when the, the the dreaded question of you know why did I come back from India um, I replied with uh, I had a virus um, and, and came back I did have a virus I was ill but there was obviously clearly more um, other things that were, were going on which were deeper uh, and that sparked then people to ask further questions and start hounding you as they can do um on your doorsteps and and following you around to try and um i just guess not invent stories but really try and work out what was going on and there was there was a few other uh, issues then that were being talked about but um clearly not you know, obviously not true none of them it was just a case that i wasn't ready to explain to people uh, what was going on because I, mainly because i didn't know what was going on I'm going to go on to another tough topic, sledging. Mm-hmm. And I personally find the um, practice of sledging, speaking to a batsman disrespectfully, who bowlers know have a mental health problem, quite abhorrent. Mm. Can you understand why I would think that? Yeah, I do. I, I think there's a there's a fine line between um, general sledging about what goes on and then saying things to somebody about a personal issue i don't believe that happens um there's only one person has said a couple of things to me when i first finished playing with england and that was back in 2006 7 that was and that was the small minority of what it is we're now 10 years down the road um people have never really said anything that's going to affect in that way they they've sledged me they've chirped me on various other topics but never about being you know, a sufferer of mental health problems, and and I would hope that that doesn't happen in in any walk of life. As you wouldn't, if somebody was suffering with another illness, you wouldn't draw upon that. And people have crossed the line. Don't get me wrong, but you'd kind of hope that that doesn't happen. Can you remember what the comment was? Something about going to see my psychologist or something like that. I think it was. I only come up here to see your psychologist or something like that. And and I was a little bit. Yeah, that's bang out of order. And and I guess at the time I was probably a little bit timid about it. If someone said anything to me about it now, I'd jump all over them. What would you, what would you say? <laughs> I don't know. I'd probably lose my rag, and, and I don't lose it very easily. What happens when Marcus Truscothic loses his rag? It's not. It's I, I'm out of control, really. It's just you. You know, I would I would take a bit of time to calm down, probably, and and get back into to playing the game. But because I think it's so it's. The ultimate disrespect, really, isn't it, for what you can try and do? Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com 
slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You see, meeting you and actually having this conversation with you, Marcus, the word that seems to strike me is you're very controlled, mm. very, very under control. I just wonder what it like, what it's like when you lose it. Yeah, it's not something I do very easily, and it's not something I particularly enjoy when I do. Um, I would probably only really lose it a great deal at home now and again when I get annoyed with something or if I'm out. Sometimes I lose my... <laughs> I lose a few, uh, um, not friends, but I, I throw a few things around the change room. Sometimes I've been known to kick a few things or hit a few things. Um, fallen over a few times when I've kicked and slipped and and done that. But um, I, I am very controlled. I don't I don't like losing control of what I of my emotion of it. Um, I try and stay in very much in control of, of it as much as I can do because um, I want to be as level headed as possible. But I think what what strikes me is when I'm working with people who say very similar things to you is I can understand why you don't particularly want to feel the bad things because they're very painful. Mm. But by being in control, it also limits the joy that can be brought into your life. Do you think that's a fair comment? Ooh, tricky one. Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I still enjoy everything that, that comes along, and what, what more is there? Can I can I sit back and enjoy? I try to enjoy everything that now. Is thrown at me in life. Um, but you don't strike me as a man who's going to throw your head back and laugh uncontrollably. Um, maybe not in this situation. No. <laughs> you would get my teammates, no doubt, would give you a totally different perspective. What would they say? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> You'd have to ask them. But <laughs> I, I'm uh, the person I am within the changing room um, and within a private environment would not be potentially the person I would maybe portray within the public image I, I guess publicly I'd be quite calm quiet controlled um, and in the changing room what um, give, gives a flavour of who that other Marcus just got when I'm more relaxed it's a lot easier just to, to to chirp and to have a laugh and joke about and um, yeah I'm a very different person there when, I, when I'm relaxed and comfortable where I am with people and mm. uh, knowing that you know, things, <laughs> nothing bad's going to happen but um, just knowing that I'm happy that I can be my not be myself, but be that type of person in amongst players. What type of person? Just a just a relaxed, normal, normal person. I don't try and necessarily be any different no. to 
to to the public or to the people that that necessarily don't know me as well. But I guess I generally am. I guess we all are in a business sense compared to a a home environment or a comfortable environment where they're going to be. Welcome back to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and Somerset opener, Marcus Truscothic. Your autobiography more or less finishes at the time when you've packed in international cricket and you've said goodbye to England. So what's happened between then and now in terms of your anxiety about travelling abroad? Well, has it changed? Maybe a little bit. Um, I've continued to try and explore trying to do it, and want to get back to that time. I used to love touring. There's parts of touring which were absolutely fantastic. You know, we spent the last three uh, pre-seasons with Somerset in in Spain at Desert Springs, a place there which is built. You know, they've got the cricket facilities and do whatever they do, um, and that has been outstanding. You know, just to get that time away again and and uh, knowing that I can potentially start doing this all over again could I go away for a month now probably not right now I'd, I'd want to build it up and go away sort of 10 days two weeks you know and, and get back into it that way so what's the difference between being away for 10 days and for example three weeks what's the difference well I think it, it's just to build up my confidence to it at the moment you know more than anything else rather than jump into it and go right I'm going to be away for now three weeks um, just build up my tolerance to the levels of what I can and can't do mm-hmm. um I think then, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with, a, with a, probably a couple of weeks away at the moment, you know, and I could probably mentally I can cope with that fact that what I'm going to do, but I just want to, I wouldn't want to jump straight in and go, right, I'm going to go away for a year or six months on a cricket tour. That, that's not probably the best way that's going to be suitable for me. Um, so building it up gradually and working over a period of maybe a, a year or so or a couple of years of doing different trips, so I'm going to manage to do so, but. And yet you made clear to me that if you were to take a three-week break with your, your wife and two children, that would mm. be fine. Yeah, no problems at all, yeah. Explain to me the difference. What comfortable. Having my comfort blanket around me, isn't it? Having the, you know, the, the people that are most close to me right there and there, they, they can understand me, they can keep me busy, they can help me through it and, and go with it that way. It's just having that, that security blanket um, there it's with funny me. the word security blanket yeah. keeps coming back into our yeah. conversation, isn't it? Just having it there is, is the key... You know, just making me feel happy that it's okay. If I'm not happy, I can turn to my wife and say, "A, I'm not happy. Can we try and sort this out, or we can let's do it?" Or I, I might make it happen even without her knowing. It just gets things, gets my brain back into the position of where it needs to be. Let's look, look, um, and talk about being married to Haley. Have you ever hidden stuff from her in terms of your mm. mental illness? Yeah, and continue to do so. Really, uh, I. I sort of deal with various days or I might have a couple of days where I'm feeling a bit under the weather and not quite mentally how I want to and I I don't burden her um, or the family with it um, for as long as possible until I get to the point where I think, okay, now I need to try and probably take a bit of time out and and just sort of get things under control and I'll let her know. But it's normally at quite a, um, I guess, a late stage, if you like, more than anything else. I just try and... Because I deal with it... Um, on numerous occasions where I just get myself back on track, so there's no need to you know to bring her in too much and, and let her know everything about it. You see, one of the curious things about depression and anxiety is that often the sufferers isolate themselves, mm. and actually what they need is company and mm. understanding of other people. And it's almost like mm. you're a classic sufferer in that respect. Well, I like the company. I would do everything I know that works to get myself, get me and my brain back in gear, but they may not know 
why I'm doing it. But what would I don't understand what would be the point in not sharing with your wife from the get-go yeah. that you were going through a tough period? I think just the adding extra responsibility to them. And yeah. d- does that work for her? Does she ever turn around to you and say, you know, Marcus, thank you for not burdening me with this? Yeah. Or is it more likely she'd say, you know what, you should have said something? Yeah, you should have said something, as you do, as everybody does. I, I feel I can cope with it to a certain extent. That's why I don't burden people with it. Because I, I can cope and understand it and get myself back on track without anybody else knowing. For a certain period of time, anyway. I think it'd be really useful to hear what those coping mechanisms are, because there'll be many people listening to this this radio broadcast mm. saying, well, how does Marcus deal with it? Well, medication, I guess, is the first part of it. I still continue to take um, two medications now, uh, daily. So I take an antidepressant in the morning, I take an anti-anxiety in the evening. Um, so that is, is something that can change, obviously, overnight, if you like, if you, if you start to... Um, become ill again mm-hmm. uh, my especially my anti-anxiety i can up and down the dosages on that fairly easily um then i there's little things like i try and time manage quite quite well um in terms of right i have like a time diary if you like and it would be day to day hour by hour of my time when i wouldn't be working so if, it generally comes at the end of a season when I when I know then I've got a lot of period of time off, I would hourly program in walking the dog, taking the kids to school. You actually have to write that down. Yeah, just just it's a mental thing more than anything else to know sure. that my time is is taking up, and I'm not going to have all that period of time sat there doing nothing, worrying, watching TV, doing absolutely nothing. Uh, and it, and it will be as simple as taking the kids to school, walking the dog, uh, doing the garden, cutting the grass, whatever it may be, just so I can program it in. Um, I do like to keep myself really busy, so. I would overwork um, when I'm feeling poorly because I just want—I don't want to sit there and dwell on everything that's going on until I get to that point in the evening when I know that things calm down and then I will relax um, and understand it because it's just um, I want to try and keep my brain focused on a task um, so it knows that it's it's not going into overdrive and catastrophizing everything that's going on. Do you ever allow your brain just to idle and and meditate? Not when I'm not when I'm ill. No, no, I don't. I don't enjoy the feeling of it. Um, I have meditated. I have, you know, you you do various things. Um, I've tried it. I haven't particularly had much great success with it. I don't particularly find it gives me a great deal that I I would take away and then um, use on another occasion. It's you know the couple of things that I would put together. The medication is vitally important and the time management is is key for me um and then obviously keeping myself busy as much as i can because it sounds like routine is everything for Mm. you marcus yeah i do like a routine yeah yeah when when things are in place it's it's comfortable then it's when the changing of the seasons or the changing of the times um that's when you you get thrown out of out of kilt really and it's just um, not quite it takes a little bit of time then just to you know reboot and get back into the next system of whatever it's going to be whether that's uh the end of the season um kids breaking up from school you just got to get i got to get used to it and, and know what, what i do and, and understand it again it sounds like flexibility is not something that comes naturally to you no i no, probably not no i like to be structured mm. um you know in in pretty much everything i do there's other other parts of my life i'd be very unstructured probably but um, i like control and understanding that it's all my eggs are in, you know, my ducks are in a row, um, and just knowing what I do from from day to day. Um, my my wife would say differently that you never know what you're doing. Are you? You know, why can't you tell me what you're doing in a couple of weeks? But 
I don't like to try and put too many things in into that, but I do, I do like to keep busy as much as I can. And what would you say has been the most effective therapy that you've you've been involved with? Um, cognitive behavioural therapy is is something that continues on. I probably should have mentioned that to that last question. It's mm. also something that I I use and have a therapist that I continue to go to. The same guy that I spoke to um, was the first person I worked with when I first came back from India in in two thousand and six. So I have him available as a as a friend as much as anything now that he knows me. He he likes his cricket and we can go and talk and work things out. People might not have heard of cognitive behavioural therapy, sometimes mm-hmm. called CBT. What are the sort of things that, that, that he would work with you on? What sort of techniques would he give you? Um, well, well, first and foremost, it's it's getting there and talking, um, explaining what I am feeling and how my brain is working, the symptoms I'm suffering with, trying to, if there's a problem, what is that problem? How can we work it out? How mm. can we resolve it? So um, kind of problem solving. Uh, a little bit, I guess, and there'd be. A, I'm sure there's a few different techniques he would use. Probably some that I'm not even aware of that that he's trying to do. But um, I think you've got to challenge the problem more than anything else. If there's something in my brain which is it is causing me that issue, um, then we need to try and resolve it. How are we going to resolve what the issue is? Is it something that we can go, okay, do this and it will go away, or is it something okay we have to put a long-term process in to try and work it out? And sometimes you. You meet with these therapists for three times a week. Sometimes it's once in a, every six months. It just depends on, on what you try and do. But um, it's more than it's having that sounding board there. And, and I do rely on them in the fact that they can tell me that the, the symptoms that I'm suffering with are normal to the disorder that you know you suffer with. Mm. You know, so when you say the anxiety is making me do this, or I feel like this, and they'll go, "Yep, yeah, that's classic." to what you should be feeling this is a natural emotion to how you should be responding to the problem that you're you're foreseeing and um it's not always a problem it's sometimes that you you invent it in your own mind that that causes it but you know once now i've got a bit of a grip on it myself i can almost implement those uh, and understand those and i guess that's part of my own coping strategy that not telling Haley why i do this is because i can start to cope and start to get myself back on track without speaking to these people uh, a little bit uh, until certain points then I feel enough is enough One of the interesting things about talking to you is you're not desperate to know why Mm. you are who you are you're very keen to find out how to resolve the problems as they come up but the why is something that you'd rather keep Mm. in another country I I, I don't see I, I I can't give an answer to why because it would be somebody telling me why because I'm not aware of it. If I if I haven't worked out why, then I can't control why. I, all I can control is if I pull a hamstring running between wickets, like I very often do. <laughs> how can I get better? How am I going to get my leg better so that I can play cricket next week? Or um, I got a punctured tire. How am I going to get it better? Go and get a new tire. Whatever it may be, and it's the same, exactly the same process. I don't know why. I don't want to know why. It's, it's irrelevant. Why, why to me. don't you want to know why? Because many people, given your history of, of mental health and, and all the things that have affected your career, would say, I really want to know why this has affected me from being a little boy. But that's not you. No. I, I, that's not a criticism. No, Mark, no, no, it? absolutely. I'm, um, I, I don't have a... It's nothing burning inside me to know why, because I don't think it would make any difference. Is there fear? No, I, I just, there's just no desire. What difference does it make? Okay, you tell me why. Um, 
I was brought up in a certain fashion, whatever it may be. Okay, deal. Let's move on. What what is it going to achieve now? What are we going to achieve by finding how or why this has happened? The counter argument would go that you would understand it better and you would resolve it and maybe have a, a different path to resolving this long term because you're a relatively young man. This is going to go on presumably for yeah. the rest of your life. Yeah. There are people who would say, listening to this broadcast, well, finding out why is the key to the, the problem. Okay. I know you disagree that's, with yeah, me. Yeah, that's not in my... That's not in my mind. I don't see as... And this programme is not here to yeah. find out why, but my fascination, and I'm owning my fascination here, yeah. Marcus, is to really understand why you don't want to know why. Because I just don't have any desire. It's really not in me to go, I don't want, I want to know why. You just I'm want... I'm just happy to keep control of it because it, it's horrible when it goes out of control, so you want to know how to put it right all the time. And is the fear that if you try to dig into the why that it might leap out of control, almost like a genie out of a bottle. I've never thought I could probably solve the problem. Once I've, in the last 10 years, 11 years, since I've really understood what depression, anxiety is, yes, you want to be better, and you want it under control, but I've never thought, how can I cure this? Can I cure this? I don't know if I can. So because I'm not sure if I can, I've never even thought, let's go and cure it, let's try and cure it. So that's that. Those pro, those thoughts have never come to my mind to go. Let's put it to bed forever because I don't know if I can. <laughs> I don't know how, I, and I've never thought I could necessarily. I, I may be totally wrong, and you you will know more than me, and therapists know more than me, and the people the experience of it know more than me. But well, I tell you what's the clue for me, Marcus. I'll be I'll be absolutely honest with you. There's a lot of avoidance going on, keeping yourself busy, having the timetables, mm. making sure your mind isn't isn't am, uh, idling. That, to me, it seems like a defence mechanism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a way of you avoiding really looking at some really powerful stuff. That's how I feel as a therapist. Mm. But you're looking me over the table as if to say, I just don't want to go there. And that's fine. Yeah. I'm not. I don't. No. no I, I have no, as I said to you, I have no aspirations to try and work out why. That's just, I see it as a coping mechanism to getting myself back to how I am today being able to come and talk to you about it and just be the day-to-day person that I need to be. That's how I cope with it. Defensive, yeah, it may well be defensive, I'm not sure, but it's just that's how I've learned to deal with it. And sometimes I feel like a bowler when I'm with you Mm. and you're playing straight back towards me. Yeah, Yeah, quite possibly, yeah. Yeah, If you look at it in that way. What would you say to a young cricketer who might be listening to this uh, this broadcast or a young sportsman who recognises a lot of the things that you're talking about? Mm. What would your message to them be? I think seek help more than anything else, and, and that would probably consist of talking to somebody that you trust, and that would be maybe a parent or um, a friend, uh, a colleague, something like that, um, obviously, or a doctor to try and then... Just put the wheels in motion. As I talked about before, one of the biggest things that helped me was acknowledging the fact of what it is and understanding and coping with it. Um, but you've got to seek help somewhere along the line. Once you've once you've solved the problem or shared the problem with somebody, then you can start to put wheels in motion. I'd like to know from you how important sport has been to you in terms of a plus in terms of mental health and how much has it been a minus mm. in terms of mental health? Um, well, minus obviously in the last few years of my England career that you know struggling with it while I was away. Obviously, then that was 
pretty tough mm. um, and in within the public eye and and explaining it to people um you know trying to let people know that was fairly tricky to start with the, the positively um i've used my brain in in great ways to you know to help me play cricket um and that is the key to my success having my brain operating and concentrating to make it work uh, and that has helped me greatly um you know you get you to a point where i am now having played six years of international cricket which was brilliant i would love to have done 26 years you know but uh, uh wasn't to be um but it you know you use it for good things you use it for bad things it's just trying to understand why and what does the future hold? You're about to enter your 25th year mm. as a professional cricketer. That's some going. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd love it still. Yeah, I'm, you know, my body's not quite in the shape that it used to be, and um, it takes a bit more out of you from on a day-to-day basis. But you know, the passion for it and the love for the game and, and wanting to do well, it's still there. You know, I'd sign a five-year contract now if I was allowed to carry on playing. It's just uh, there may be other factors that sort of inhibit it that uh, uh, and stop it. You know, lasting that long, but um, who knows? Really, I think I, I will carry on playing. I want to carry on playing for as long as I can do. It's just whether the club obviously foresee that uh, happening as well. Do you fear retirement? Because obviously, you have to try to keep yourself mm. busy at a time when you've mm-hmm. finished playing cricket. Yeah, I guess you do. Yeah, of course. It, I think it's a tricky time in in everybody's sort of career, if you like, um, because I love the feeling of putting the pads on and going out to bat and practicing every day. But you could play club cricket. Yeah, I know it's not quite the same. <laughs> you know, the, the day-to-day meaning of what it is. That um, I, I guess I'm starting to plan for that. You know, over the last probably three or four years, I now, um, you know, working in different areas. Um, I now only play four-day cricket, which gives me a great opportunity to work in different departments and. Um, industries. I work at local school where my kids go as a as a cricket coach, Taunton School, um, which you know during the winter in particular, I'm I'm there quite regularly, um, and that continues during the summer. And I also do work on the the TV, the punditry stuff with uh, you know on the cricket. Um, and you you know you put those sort of wheels in motion. I work, I've come straight from the PCA today. We had a benevolent fund meeting discussing you know how we can help and the. The next stages of trying to, you know, help people with mental well-being, gambling problems, addictions, whatever it may be. So, um, irons in the fire, I guess, more than anything else. But it will be a sad day, no doubt about it. Once I decide to, enough is enough. So you see cricket as the rest of your life in some shape or form. Definitely, definitely. In, in what shape? Yeah, I'm not sure, but it will be involvement somewhere. And if Sky Television said, uh, Marcus, we've got a we've got a tour of India coming up. We'd like you to go out there and be an, as part of our commentary team for mm-hmm. six weeks. What would you say? Uh, right now, if they asked me, I'd probably say, uh, probably say no, because you know I don't want to jump straight into a six week period. I, I would discuss with them and try and uh, manipulate it into a fashion. Can I come and do two weeks? And now say yes or no, <laughs> and then we can discuss around it. But. Um, I guess that's part of my goal is to get back up to that point where I'm comfortable enough when the the kids are old enough and maybe moved away that I can um, accept those sort of um, job offers to then be involved and maybe potentially do it. Do you see this inability to be abroad for long periods of time without your family as something long term or something that you feel you might just defeat one day? I think um, I will need to build it up, of course, as I've been talking about. But yeah, I'd like to think that I can get back on top of it. It might not be something that will be cured long term and completely go away and never have any problems, um, but with the help of you know the, the things that I've learned, but also the medication that I can take, definitely calms the feelings down. 
um, so you you can cope with it a little bit easier. So you know, long term, let, let's hope it gets back on track, and I can do a six week stint uh, and have no issues. Suppose you and I were to meet in five years' time. What do you think? What would you like to be able to say to me in five years' time yeah. about what you had done to progress your life forward? Well, I'd like to say to you, right, I'd still sign another five-year contract and carry on going <laughs> till I'm 50. Um, but but I very all? much doubt it. Um, uh, I would li- like to think that we've moved forward, that I'm now a, a coach in some capacity, either with Somerset or, or beyond in, in other counties or other areas. Um, that would be my objective first and foremost in terms of uh, your career looking back now Marcus as an international cricketer county cricketer what would you say that you have given to the game not just all the runs you've scored but the insights that you have managed to share with us tricky would... isn't it mm. um, uh, you help youngsters of course you do and, and I will continue to do that probably more as I get older um, the biggest thing that I could probably say is that I've I have a huge love of what I do and I try and give that to the the team, the day, the the innings that I'm playing or whatever it may be to be the best I can be and I hope the fact think that I've I would leave that on the as a lasting legacy really that um just had a huge passion and love for what I did. And surely you I think you're being immodest if you don't mind me saying so. Uh because I think the yeah. one of your huge legacies is you've um You've allowed people to talk about mental health in mm. sport, which is absolutely enormous. Mm. Yeah, I tell you, and it's probably for more for people to say rather than me sort of pinpoint and say that like, I've left this, this, left this with the game and, and understanding. But I appreciate it. Is obviously writing the book and, and talking about it. You know, I'm more well known for that, the mental health side of things, rather than potentially the cricket that I played for you know for twenty odd years or for. Um, you know, six years of international cricket. Um, the mental health side has probably influenced more people along the way. You know, the letters that you receive, um, emails you receive. When I when I wrote the book about helping people and saving people, that was very very nice to see that you know we've made a big impact on it for for all the problems and that I'd suffered and and continue to do so. We're helping people to understand it and and hopefully get better and just get more control over what's going on in their own life or solve the problem, like we say. Marcus Druskothic, many thanks for being on The Sporting Couch. Thank you. You've been listening to On The Sporting Couch, a programme that attempted to lift the lid on mental health issues in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, psychotherapist, counsellor and sports broadcaster, and my guest in the studio has been Somerset and England opening batsman Marcus Druskothic. I hope the programme will have encouraged anyone who has or knows anyone who has mental health issues to come forward and get help. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website, talksport.com forward slash sporting couch. I'm Gary Bloom and please remember there's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.